Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the December 2023 edition of State of Distressed Debt, part of the FIC Focus podcast series where we focus on the U.S. stressed, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I'm your host, Noel Hubert, and joining me to explore the state of play are litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distressed analyst Phil Brindell of Bloomberg Intelligence. So as we edge towards the new year, all of us here at FIC Focus would like to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on such a regular basis. We know that your time is valuable, which is why we are so focused on continuing to bring you the best guests, the best content in fixed income currencies and commodities, and we couldn't do it without your continued support. So thank you once again for following and sharing and listening in. In this episode, Phil and I sit down with Andy Taylor. Andy is Managing Director over at Hedge Fund Carinade Capital Management. And he joined us for a very thoughtful, very wide-ranging conversation that we do hope that you'll enjoy. But first, as we like to do, we like to set the stage a little bit, give a little bit of a state of play in the market. And well, Phil, I mean, geez, the, the whiplash continues here. I mean, after some Treasury-led risk-off in October, November, more than a round trip, true face ripper of a rally, high yield with 4.5% return spread solidly inside of 400 basis points. So Anyone waiting on the softening macro or deteriorating micro fundamentals that we see, I mean, I guess I get some room on the couch next to me here. They can come and wait alongside. But what are you seeing in the distress space? Well, just that. I mean, you know, just when we thought we we, we got a little bit, I guess, pessimistic in thinking that distressed debt ranks were going to increase in November because there was like that tail end momentum at the end of October. Uh, boy, it just reversed and you know distress supply fell 10 billion dollars in november to 96 billion of course we're looking at the ice high yield index and that has about 1.3 trillion dollars of high yield bonds and we look at that portion of it that's distressed and that was 96 billion at the end of november uh and you know that's a that that's about a distress ratio of 7.4% um, healthcare continues to lead with communications right behind um, in terms of, you know, sectors providing distressed. Uh, and, you know, again, we're just testing the bottom of this range. I think we're going to continue to have a an elevated range of distressed supply. I still think we're going to do a slow climb higher, but we've been consolidating in this range for the better part of 18 months now. Um, the, the peak in this cycle was reached at 10.7% in June of 2022. So this is, you know, and if you're a high yield investor, you couldn't have sat on the sideline for that long. Um, so, you know, I have some sympathy for people who are trying to time for institutional accounts who try and time this market, because this is this has really been a, uh, a slow, a slow rise higher. Yeah, it's like playing a game of Othello. It seems like, you know, the, the, the little toggles flip black or white and it's just, it's all in or it's all out. But, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like anybody's sort of convictions, regardless of which way they tilt, have changed very much in the interim. So 
will be yeah. interesting to continue to watch. But maybe that actually sets up pretty well for our conversation that we did have with Andy. So let's go ahead and bring that in now. Hello, Noel and I are thrilled to have Andy Taylor join us from Carnade Capital. Andy has a distinguished investment career with stops at Lehman Brothers, R3 Capital, BlackRock, and Elliott Management, where he was a portfolio manager. And then finally, he is currently at Carnade. He joined there in 2020 as a managing director and head of research. I've actually had the pleasure of getting to know Andy when we worked together at BlackRock in the late 2000s. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, happy to be here and uh, it's good to connect with you guys. So Andy, we find the best way to start is to dig into your seat today and then maybe a, a summary of how you arrived there. I, I mentioned a number of your stops, but perhaps there are some additions you'd like to make to those. But uh, you know, maybe first start with Carinade Capital. Please tell us about it. Sure. Um, I would describe uh, Carinade as a credit-oriented special sits fund. Um, our backgrounds are all deeply uh, have a lot of uh, distressed, you know, distressed litigation sort of process-driven backgrounds. Um, I think our our fund is certainly heavily influenced by Elliott. You know, as you mentioned, I spent time there. Um, our trader overlapped with me while I was there. Um, uh, Tom Lyon, T uh, Dan Groper spent, you know, a decade at, uh, at Elliott uh, prior to joining with another Elliott uh, person to set up another fund called Aurelius. So um, I think we're very much kind of the progeny of Elliott and uh, heavily influenced by that. We um, offer what I would suggest is, you know, our goal is to offer a, a durable, less correlated rate of return. Uh, we are a true hedge fund. We are not a long only manager and we're trying to uh, use our skills and our, our expertise in, I would say a broader playbook than a lot of other, you know, so-called distressed managers, um, which keeps us busy all the time. And um, I think offers a, a unique sort of product to our uh, investor base. And in terms of like the team architecture, like what's a typical day like at, at, at Carinade? And, you know, if you can just give us sort of a feel for, you know, what a typical day might be like. Uh, a typical day, um, we get together first thing in the morning where we go through any updates uh, that occurred in any of our existing positions, um, anything that we learned yesterday or the day before uh, or, or, or overnight as far as market movements, new information, things that we found curious. Um, and then we all get a chance, you know, to help each other out or connect people or, you know, touch on historical experiences that we have with those situations and sort of try to set some of the agenda of the day. So everybody knows kind of what we're doing at all times. Um, you know, no one's working in a vacuum. And then we start off and, um, you know, the work is varied. You know, we are somewhat of a, I would say, like an adult swim. Um, you know, we're not private credit just rolling out the same term sheet and competitive processes over and over and over and over. We are dealing with uh, restructurings. We're dealing with things going through M&A uh, processes that are, you know, have litigation ongoing. Um, 
so we, you know, we could spend time reading about a new industry and a new company that something has fallen out of bed. We could spend time, you know, reviewing uh, transaction support agreements and and potentially being part of a group to uh, work something out. We could be reading, you know, litigation uh, updates off of a docket and sort of trying to handicap and, and keep abreast of what's going on there. Um, it's really varied and it, and it covers a, a large domain. No, very interesting. It, it sounds like you're extremely flexible and extremely collaborative. And and to to maybe maybe we, let's just rewind the clock and you know talk about how you got into distressed investing. I I know you know I I was part of we intersected for a little bit, but uh, there was there was a lot before that and a lot after that. So if you could maybe discuss your your past. Uh. Sure, I'll try to be somewhat brief. Uh, you know, I was a stock junkie going back into grade school. Um, I've always wanted to be an investor, but I took an unusual path for someone on Wall Street. I actually spent five years working as an engineer. My last job was uh, uh, as a Six Sigma black belt um, at a Medtronic heart valves of all things. Um, so I went to uh, University of Chicago for business school, uh, the CFA program. Um, and uh, as a radical career changer, and and started at Lehman Brothers, and I, you know, since then I've you know been really fortunate to work with, you know, some really just truly incredible people, and uh, at some really great firms. Um, there are too many kind of to name individually, but you know, both at Lehman and R three, I was on a team that was led by Rick Reeder, um, who uh, has gone on to, she's I think his title is like CIO of, you know global fixed income or something. Um, I'm sure I'm not doing it justice. Um, at BlackRock, in addition to Rick and, and when we uh, crossed paths, uh, worked really closely with Jimmy Keenan, um, you know, when he was running Leverage Finance. Um, at Elliott, there's a bunch of really sharp folks that I worked with and, um, you know, that was great. And now partnering with Dan and the rest of the team that we've assembled, you know, really, really excellent experienced, successful professionals uh, at the team that we put together here at Cairn 8. It's just, it's been really special. I've been yeah. very lucky. Yeah, it sounds like you've uh, had a, uh, I wouldn't call it a Forrest Gump because you're certainly no Forrest Gump, but you've bumped into a lot of uh, luminaries in that process. Um, so, you know, I, I think we touched on your, uh, you know, the architecture of your team. Can you talk about maybe about the investment process, all the things they kind of go into analysis? And it sounds like you're very flexible, so it might not be the same thing every time. Um, but yeah. you know, maybe if you can touch on sourcing, how you how your how your fund thinks about risk versus reward, and uh, you know, and also when to get out of a position because you know a lot of times it's you know there's obviously always cutting losses, but you know even letting profits run that that's that can sometimes be a difficult thing for funds to do sure um i'll take a crack at that um, um you know one thing actually that um paul singer used to say um was that our product is rate of return that is what our investors eat that is the that is the product that we offer our investors and i think that we very much have that mindset here too um when we size and construct portfolios when you know a source it, obviously a portfolio return is still built about the building blocks which are individual trades um, sourcing can come from anything um, a good idea can come from anywhere we are always busy because 
the things that we look at in addition to you know, distressed and restructurings of bankruptcies, which we love. We are built for purpose. We are waited with bated breath for that next credit cycle. But we are busy all the time because we can come up with trades that are, you know, our funnel is filled with uh, M&A. It's filled with litigation. It's filled with exogenous shocks from regulatory changes, uh, spin outs, liability management, recapitalizations, uh, and, and so forth. And so, uh, and we can go anywhere in the globe. And so, you know, it keeps... There's just a, a regular cadence of things that are going on all the time. And we're not a high frequency shop. You know, we may have, you know, a couple of new trades a month and, and close out a couple of trades a month. Um, and so we are, we tend to be fairly concentrated. And so there's always opportunities for us. Um, as far as uh, what do we do when we, you know, we are responding generally to news. We are responding to an exogenous shock. So as generalists, we have to get up to speed on what is going on in an otherwise complicated situation. So we race to try to understand a company. So we have to break down a company. You know, how does it make money? What's its balance sheet? What's its corporate structure look like? Um, really understanding how that company generates cash, reinvest cash. What's its prospects in the absolute? What's its prospects relative to the industry over the next couple of years and what's so sort of really trying to get our arms around and value that proverbial left side of the balance sheet. That's a necessary condition, but that's not enough. Then we also have to understand the right side of the balance sheet. And we feel that there's more actionability. There, there's, a, there's more ability to monetize the insights that we got, we create on the left side by having a flexible mandate to look for more mispricings up and down the right side of the balance sheet, if you will. And so, um, you know, we have to break down the credit docs and understand its priority. What bundle of rights does each instrument have and look for potentially mispricings? Um, and then we look for revaluation catalysts. And, and nowadays, you really have to think about you know, uh, you know, rational actor assessments, like in these complex situations, a sponsor, a management team, or activist shareholders, you know, what are their motivations? What are they likely to do? And you have to marry that with any sort of court outcomes, technicals, et cetera. So it's a lot to try to digest when we kind of do the full Monty. Um, we are looking for, at the end of the day, I would say, um, you know, asymmetry, you know, something that is, um, you know, that proverbial risk adjusted return, something that looks um, better. We, you know, we have a fundamental view and then we'll try to come up with a view of like the event stream. And then we try to marry an exposure or a distribution of outcomes that fits that. You know, our playbook is broader than just I buy top of the capital structure debt long. And that's all I do. You know, it, we can come up with other trades. We can do things that are more optimal or more efficient than just that. And I think that's kind of that broadening of the playbook, I'd say, is one of our biggest differentiators. And so here's an interesting question. Um, if you've got sort of a, a hurdle, you know, like I, I remember back in my early hedge fund days when I did macro, we'd be looking for trades in liquid markets where we'd look for a four to one kind of risk reward ratio. And, you know, you have that asymmetry. Um, you you clearly have a hurdle for the fund. Um, how does, do, do you try and marry diversity into there as well? Because as, as, as we all know, we're dealing with very uncertain events and how do you think about that in terms of, uh, you know, like, will you accept a little bit of a lower hurdle rate on something, but it, it adds nice diversity or, uh, you know, I'm just curious how you might uh, marry the two. 
Yeah, um, our portfolio is fairly heterogeneous. Um, you know, we have things that are going through a restructuring, going through a process. Um, they may not be, and oftentimes are not accruing a coupon. Um, and, and sort of the returns on that will be largely driven by capital appreciation, sort of, um, you know, higher rates of return. We also have strategies that are owning, you know, uh, stress credit or, you know, in complex situations where things are, we think mispriced because of, you know, fear of a sponsor or a misunderstanding of a corporate structure, um, underappreciated bundle of rights unique to a particular instrument or security. Um, we also have a, you know, a, a, we also express things in like intra-capital structure trades or relative value, like so-called capital structure arbitrage. We, we can do trades and do trades that are, you know, long debt, short equity. Sometimes we're long equity and short debt, uh, curve trades, senior sub trades, um, things of that nature. Uh, and then event driven things, you know, like pure litigation or, um, you know, we got involved in, in the, you know, the, the litigation slash, you know, Twitter situation last year, we felt very, very strongly that that was going to close. And so, you know, we expressed that through bonds and, and sort of option structures. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to just sort of give a blanket hurdle rate uh, when you have that many different, you know, some of our positions are short biased uh, or, you know, not short biased or completely short. And so it really is heterogeneous. You know, we have in our portfolio at any given time, we have trades that primary position direction are long. We have some that are primarily short. We have some that are structured with, you know, structural asymmetry, either options or, you know, basis trade or curve trade or um, intra-capital structure trades. And so that provides um, a lot of different directions. Um, so I don't have a good answer as far as like a specific hurdle. It really sort of depends on, you know, the individual trades and the individual uh, setups. But so it sounds um, it, it sounds like the powers in the in the numbers uh, that, that that there's a it's not just one or two positions it's a lot of positions a, across yeah, the board. We, we, yeah, we are not pursuing things that are um, five or six percent return on assets and levering that up multiple times to get to an, an acceptable rate. We, um, you know, our I guess our, our return on assets. Uh, certainly, you know, shoots for, you know, well into the, you know, double digits and things generally. Well, that, that, that's great, Andy. I'm going to hand you off to Noel uh, to, to, because I'm sure he'll be asking you questions about a lot of those <laughs> uh, exogenous uh, events that could <laughs> rattle markets, not just distressed. Well, I'm just happy uh, to be able to participate. Uh, I think that's uh, sort of what it is. I guess maybe before we kind of step back and look at some of maybe maybe more of the macro catalysts, I guess, you know, one of the follow-ons I would have uh, uh, just in terms of process there is, you know, when you're all kind of coming to the table, is it sort of the name that begets the the sort of the structure? Is it the structure sort of that sort of leads you in the direction of a given name? Or do you think it's sort of all, everything sort of pulls on the, the thread together such that there's a name and a given structure that's sort of in mind as you're contemplating and thinking through sort of the investment opportunity? I'd say it kind of varies, to be honest. Um, you know, there are times where you see a capital structure that or a company you know, is starting to just list and start trading poorly and it's complex. 
Um, but there's no real immediacy to sort of look at it. We will oftentimes start trying to just spend some resources and time to understand that with the full expectation that there may be nothing that jumps out for us for now. Uh, we don't have any precon expectations of exactly what we're going to do, but we just spend the time because if we can break a complex situation down, complex capital structure, the, op the chances that we will find a trade construct with our broad playbook at some point is generally reasonably high. And so we found, we find over the course of record that that's a generally a good use of time. Um, and then there are other situations like, you know, I just mentioned it before, but like that Twitter thing, uh, Twitter, you know, that was not on our radar screen. We had spent no time. That is just reactionary to news and, and, and prices. And so, um, that is, I, I don't want to give you a non-answer, but it, it just depends. It's, it's sort of, it just depends on the situation and, and, you know, we just, we're opportunistic <laughs> investors, so it, we take it as it comes. Yeah, and that's totally fine. And I think, so I maybe wanted to pull on uh, one of the threads that you alluded to and you talked about sort of the, the different sort of investment styles and approaches and the flexibility that uh, the fund provides in terms of, depending on where you are in the cycle, you know, so when we're in sort of a downdraft or, or sort of a weaker cycle, there's going to be more opportunities, et cetera. So I guess maybe stepping back more macro, um, do you sort of have that sort of top-down approach? Do you say, hey, listen, this is where credit is, and basically we can just, you know, it's shooting fish in the proverbial barrel. Uh, and, and do you have sort of a macro view right now in terms of what kind of cycle you think we're in and, and where you think we might be going? Yes, we do. We're markets, you know, I'm a markets person, so it's hard not to have expectate, you know, views. Um, I would, you know, as a fund, we are you know, no one's going to confuse us with you know, our fund with like, you know, Stanley Druckenmiller. We are not macro traders. And so, you know, we do not reposition the fund left and right uh, at all. It, you know, our, our product getting back to that is trying to use those, that effort, that work, that security selection, the trade construction, you know, edges on like litigation or complex situations. And that's really what we're trying to, you know, monetize, if you will, and, and flow through. We try to mitigate our kind of aggregate portfolio macro exposure through, you know, both position and, and sometimes portfolio level hedges. Um, but it, but we do shade things around the edges and we do, it does vary sort of, how, you know, the, um, how we shade things one way or the other, which hedges are, we think are most efficient. Um, to me, it became very clear that we were going to have problems um, going back to June of 21, uh, when the Fed was so far behind the curve, um, I've been, we've been surprised at, you know, I guess some of the um, deferral. I thought we would probably have a reckoning by the end of 21, which we didn't, but it was clear to us that we were going to have a reckoning in 22. Um, coming into this year, um, frankly, thought there would be a little reprieve in the first part of the year. Um, but to be honest, we thought that the regional banking flare up in March would likely be the transmission mechanism that really pushed us into that next credit cycle. Uh, it, when you step back, there's been so many distortions post the COVID uh, episode that it's really difficult to think that there doesn't have to be a, something to kind of come home to roost. Um, one thing that we got I think underappreciated coming out of the regional stuff in March, which we thought would probably be the catalyst to start a cycle um, 
was one, the Fed basically, you know, kicked the can by mollifying depositors from acute withdrawals. And that allowed banks who are market value insolvent to effectively defer that that issue over a longer period of time. And then we didn't really appreciate how big the deficit I'd say would be this year and sort of how much incremental stimulus that is and continues to permeate, which um, has really in our minds, you know, the deficit this year is like six or 7%. And you start thinking about that incremental push to economic growth. Um, it's really helped sustain things in our estimation. Um, employment right now is still pretty good. Um, disposable income looks still pretty good. We're coming off of two quarters of real consumer income of 5% and 4%. Um, so things are still fairly good. There's still a lot of momentum, but, and so I guess we think it's being pushed, but there's, it really does still seem like there's a, a reckoning coming. I mean, um, you have almost $20 trillion of office real estate. That's really got real, real losses that have yet to be realized and sort of addressed. Um, multifamily home housing, a lot of stuff was purchased in the last couple of years. I understand it, like three and a half percent cap rates and things. Those got, those have some short floating rate loans that need to be rolled in the next 10, 12 to 24 months. Um, regional banks, um, still have our mark to market, you know, certainly under, under capitalized and I don't think have excess capital. And so we think that they still need to retrench and sort of pull back. Um, and, and frankly, if, you know, you look at the deficits and where things are headed, you can get to some pretty dark points of view with where things are trending and potential fiscal dominance and, and how, you know, so much supply coming, et cetera, that, um, our view is it's going to, there's going to be a reckoning, but it is tricky to pick the exact timing and what's going to actually kick that process off when everyone's gotten so good at kicking the can. <laughs> uh, every, every little subcategory of the markets has gotten really, really sophisticated at kicking the can and deferring. Um, and I think that's also kind of helping push things out longer than might be intuitive. Yeah, no, it's been really surprising to me in terms of how resilient uh, spread has been, even as we've seen, you know, uh, defaults sort of tick higher uh, sort of across the board. It just really hasn't been read through into all the things you mentioned, whether it's regional banks, et cetera. Uh, uh, you know, I guess maybe, uh, you know, I don't know that it necessarily plays a view, but you alluded to sort of the deficits. And obviously, we've got this sort of inflation backdrop that continues to sort of I guess, you know, influence where rates go and stuff like that. So when you think about whether you're, you know, holding dry powder or putting money to work, do you think at all about sort of where the risk-free rate's going to be, or does that just not really play into your calculus given the nature of the investments that you're making? We think about it um, because it does um, matter a lot, obviously, to markets is the biggest, most foundational, I would say, reference price. Um, but, you know, we are not trading duration around and you know that's not a direct focal point um i would say it matters though when you think about you know where rates will be i mean i'll just use a corporate example there's a lot of corporates um particularly in the middle market and, and sort of sponsor deals that didn't have interest rate swaps in place and are now have enormous interest burdens that are unsustainable um if that continues if we are at higher levels for a longer, um, there's going to be real defaults. Um, it's not necessarily means that the businesses are completely out of, you know, 
off the trend line and are completely broken necessarily, although they might well with a recession, but you need to, but the debt service is just too high and you're going to have to have, you know, impairments and reckonings and, and with interest rates being higher, multiples will be down a little bit and the massive, massive leverage is just unsustainable at market rates. And so you're going to have impairments and default cycles um, for a lot of these loan heavy deals unless rates come in a lot really quick. I mean, I have heard some structures where companies are doing like 20% like pick preferreds and things to pay down some senior loans and layer the sponsor <laughs> equity, which I find Yummy. a little stunning. Again, this gets to my sophistication and in, in that everybody's come up with, with kicking the can. Um, but it, it's, uh, it, it matters when you start thinking about debt service, uh, a, liability management exercises, pro forma capital structures and things, uh, all of those things play into it. And so the, you know, the price of rates and, and aggregate debt service matters. Yeah, definitely want to get into some of those uh, in a little bit, but I guess maybe lastly, just sort of on the market structure thing, I guess, uh, you know, one thing that sort of gets talked about and it gets talked about in all markets uh, is really just liquidity uh, and sort of the availability. So I guess when you're thinking about uh, positions and sort of where liquidity is at today, how big of a role does sort of contemplating uh, liquidity play uh, in, in terms of your, your process? How mindful of you are that? We are. I mean, we are almost you know, all of our positions with one exception are you know, level one or level two assets. So we are relative to the spectrum of credit. We are much more on the you know, secondary markets and sort of more liquid side of credit versus, you know, a lot of the private credit or, or, or things which are just like, you know, like functioning like old commercial banks where they make a loan and then, you know, we'll deal with a strategic resolution years later. Um, so liquidity matters to us. I mean, we have great duration to our capital, our, our structure and our investors have given us quite a bit of duration to our capital. So we have room to be flexible and get involved in restructurings and, and do things here and there, but it matters. Yes, we, we pay attention to it. I'd say um, one of the biggest ways that liquidity kind of manifests itself nowadays is just the, the massive group think. I mean, you can see that in some of the aggregate returns on a month to month basis. It's um, it's student body left, it's student body right. Um, you know, the, everybody thinks that, you know, rates are gonna spiral off into the ether and then on November 1st, uh, Yellen's QR update, QRA update suggests less coupon issuance that triggers this huge rally uh, in the 10 year and, and, and creates most of, I think, what happened in November, which is this huge, like, just trade going the other way. And, and so, you know, our markets are large, but it, everybody's looking at some of the same stuff. And I think these moves get a little exacerbated. So I think that's a thing that we try to be cognizant of is, you know, we try to traffic in things that are a little bit more liquid, but... Um, you know, things can get less liquid once if, if everybody's all going the same direction at one time. And that does seem to be the case more often than not. Yeah, we've made that same trade probably four or five times, at least it feels like over the last 18 months, because everybody wants to make sure they don't miss the top tick there. Andy, do you have any thoughts on where that's coming from? Like, I mean, do, do you think it's the quantitative funds that there's a systemic element in, in, in a lot? Because we notice there's a lot of seasonality. I, I think I took a look yesterday or the day before and 23 of the past 30 Novembers have been positive months. It's, a, it's the best month of the year for the S&P index. And I'm just curious if if you've thought about like, is is this the quantitative element that like 
credit guys like you and me just don't get? I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I have never looked at this with any sort of real rigor, but my sense of it is that they, that certainly plays a part of it. I would also think that funds, I think are looking at a lot of the same material all the time. And so they're, they're seeing the same impulse in, in many cases. I also think the connectivity and the ability for funds to talk to each other has increased certainly over the, you know, people talked to each other 20 years ago, but I just, I get the strong sense that there's more group think and, and everybody's sort of, you know, connected and sharing views all at the same time. And I think that in many cases can exacerbate issues um, where you just see everybody getting on, you know, the same side of things. Um, and uh, maybe less confidence in sort of original thought. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I don't think I have anything else smart to say about that, really. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so I, I think we're, we're going to move on to sectors and, um, you know, get your thoughts on various sectors. And, you know, one of the places I thought I'd start with is media and telecom, um, you know, and you know, I, I, I think you, you indicated to us earlier when we had our pre-meet um, was the telecom was a bigger, you know, focus for you. But like, I, I loved hearing your thoughts on the media space. And I, I was hoping that you could share and the, specifically the content, the streaming, the disintermediation and, and that's going on in the marketplace. And, you know, maybe if you could just share your thoughts there. Okay, sure. Um, I think media has gone through an arc that I think was completely anticipatable and forecastable a decade ago. Um, at the end of the day, it was a really good business model, both for pro provider and consumer to bundle things through cable. <laughs> um, but then you had, you know, stock price performance telling and signaling to these folks that they needed to unbundle and separate things. And, um, you know, disrupt that very desirable business model uh, and, and very prosperous business model. And that created, you know, the ultimately over many years, the streaming wars you had. And, and so to some extent, consumers made out because there's more content than there's ever been before. But as it was very predictable, they can't monetize it. The old monetization method was blown up and they were trying to do it all through direct to consumer and and things like that. And that is a really difficult business to do. I mean, if, if we just think about when you're making a movie. If you make a movie and you spend all the money up front, if you don't actually get a big bolus of cash up front through distribution, uh, through a theatrical experience or some sort of serious um, higher dollar price monetization up front, you'll never make an IR work. Um, it, it's, it'll never happen. And so I think you, you sort of saw that basic unit economic sort of issue kind of implode. <laughs> um, and so you see a lot of media companies who've been spending inordinate amounts of money that didn't really make any economic sense, just trying to drive their stocks higher to keep up with Netflix and thinking that they were going to somehow, you know, turn water into wine. And that's clearly not happening and it's falling apart. And so now you're seeing them all cut back and try to retrench. And so um, I think you're, you're going to start seeing cable companies start rebundling and things because, you know, you need to have a way ultimately to monetize stuff. You're, gonna, you're seeing the big movie guys pivot back towards movie theater exhibitions and things. Um, so I, I don't know. There are big trends that sort of cycle through like that. That's to me the, the most 
interesting part on the media side on telecom. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a, it's a fascinating, it's such a big sector, so capital intensive. There's so many different aspects to it. Um, obviously, cable's involved in that, but you have, you know, a, a high-speed data pipe to a house, I would say, in modern America, is a, it's a utility. It's about as necessary as electricity or water um, for most people. Um, it was a really efficient business where a cable guy was connected and that was the utility. They were the monopolistic provider. Well, now everybody's trying to do, you know, a second pipe or a third pipe, they're overbuilders. And and now you have fixed wireless coming in um, as well. So in many cases, you're getting two, three, sometimes four competitors offering, they're not exactly the same service, but sort of semi-fungible services. And now Starlink and, and Amazon are talking, you know, really putting tons and tons of money into uh, these Leo satellite services and trying to offer broadband in, in another way. And so um, my experience and hunch is that this kind of ends in tears. It's way too much capital creating, way too much competitive capacity where the marginal cost is close to zero. I just think that that's generally a bad sign for capital. Um, and so, you know, that's going through a big shakeout currently. Um, and now um, one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, the, the huge move in AI and, and sort of the investment, the gold rush on that front and what that means for data centers and, and potential grid reworkings and all the telecommunications companies. It's just, it's fascinating to, sort of, to watch these big trends. With the, do you think the biggest pipe wins? I mean, you know, one of the thoughts, uh, my, my background is as an electrical engineer and telecom was like my focus back in the early nineties. Um, but one of the, the, the fundamental, you know, tenets was that the biggest pipe would win you know, that like fiber in this case to the home would be, you know, th that's clearly the, the most robust, fastest pipe. And now we have Starlink where you conceivably have, you know, satellites talking to each other. Um, that ultimately, um, who's going to be able to, you know, offer the customer the lowest price, I, I guess, is what wins. I mean, how do you think about how, how that you said it might end up in tears? Who's crying? I don't think there's a chance everybody does. I kind of <laughs> think that everybody's return on capital is going to be lower than they forecast, almost certainly. Um, I think the the best is probably the one that has the lowest capital costs to stay competitive uh, and, and just doesn't overinvest. I, you know, if I think cable is, is well positioned because with this Doxus 4.0 and things for a couple hundred bucks, they can keep like a gigawatt or maybe even uh, faster than that speeds to like a consumer household. Most households don't need more than that. And they can do that for a couple hundred bucks versus, you know, a fiber overbuilder who, you know, used to be a thousand bucks per home past. And now there's upward pressure and those, all, those numbers all look too low. And so, I, you know, if you can spend a couple hundred bucks, provide a competitive product versus someone else who has to start from, and you have the customer to begin with versus someone who is, you know, having to spend quite a bit of money to then come in and be the disruptor. Um, I, I think it's, it's the folks who spend the least thing to can stay as competitive as possible that I would think probably do the best relative, but I think everybody's capital yeah. returns on capital It'd be my hunch would be challenged. What if we right. connect and roll link to uh, Starlink? 
<laughs> what if Sorry. we connect Neuralink to Starlink and Elon Musk just has your brain? Oh. <laughs> yeah, everybody has, uh, everybody's omnipotent and everybody can just connect and think to everybody else. I, I, I am sure it's in the works. He's planning on moving all of us to Mars at some point and rescuing us from uh, the global warming. Anyway, oh. uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, can you touch on uh, commercial real estate? I, I you know, I, I, I know you've, you know, you may not be too involved in that, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are because Andy, I've always been curious what your thoughts are on sectors. Yeah, I, I am, uh, I don't work on commercial real estate much professionally, other than a handful of the corporates that are kind of evolved. Um, I get this, I, you know, I listen and try to read as, you know, what I can on it. I think my hunch is that that might well be some of the transmission mechanism to sort of the next cycle. Um, that sector is so large and the cap rates are so low and that adjustment for the cost of money is so profound with all the inherent leverage. Um, yeah, I heard some the other day that the, the going rate for multifamily housing deals were down to like three and a half percent cap rates with like 80% leverage. Um, and then you start thinking about like, if you can't raise rents, like you thought, and you think about that leverage and a lot of that was floating rate debt. That was short-term bridge loans is my understanding. That's a bad setup. That, that is, that is really a, a recipe for some real pain, um, in the next you know year or two. And so I, I think those, I, my interest is largely in that is like, does this become the mechanism? Does this become what ultimately transpires to really kind of be a, a sec, a set a second gut punch to the regional banks and really start to slow things down. My hunch is that my best hunch is that that's likely to cause um, losses and, and sort of rationalization um, with credit and, and, and losses and uh, in, in markets in general um, and to the, and then bleed into the economy. That's my best guess on the transmission mechanism. So that's why I'm interested in it uh, specifically. Um, it's my, you know, my number one suspect, I guess, at this point. Maybe kind of a slightly different angle on the same theme in terms of other sectors that sort of jump out to you where you're like, this this area is sort of ripe for opportunity and where you're finding a lot of interesting things to do or alternatively others where you're just like, not with a 10-foot pole, like you can come up with the best structure in the world. But I guess maybe with the long short, you kind of look at things from both ends. But, uh, you know, is there anything place where you say we got to be there or we have to not be there? I mean, there's, I kind of referenced it before, the the amount of capital that is pursuing AI capability, it's hard to kind of get your head around. Um, and there's a lot of speculation in the public comp, you know, stock market about those and trying to pick winners and things. One of the things I think is kind of hiding in plain sight that I don't think really people have connected with is... I think this, you know, when, when the, there was the gold rush, who, you know, what's the trope? Uh, the gold rush happened. The gold prospectors didn't make any money. There's the guys who sold uh, shovels and pickaxes. That's who made all the money. Um, you cannot have the future that everybody seems to assume as going to happen with, you know, EV adoption, uh, people talking about getting rid of natural gas and using electric to heat homes and all of this incremental AI data center, which uh, data centers come up, which are hugely power intensive, 
the material constraint there is reliable dispatchable power, um, which is they're getting rid of. I, I mean, renewables have all kinds of positive virtues, but one of the things that they don't have is they're not reliable. Last summer when Texas got hot on a median day, you might have $40 uh, power, but on a hot day when the wind doesn't blow, it would go, it wouldn't go to 50 or 60, it goes to 5,000. And that is really that nonlinearity is, uh, shows that inelasticity of demand. Well, demand for power has been very, very stable and kind of flattish for a very long, long time. Now, all of a sudden there's, there's a big upward pressure going to power. Um, and when we're retiring coal plants at record numbers, renewables were being built, but now with some of the higher costs of capital and some of the other issues, they're being canceled, postponed. This huge surge in AI demand for all these very, very large data centers, finding power and finding interconnections is a real problem. One of our uh, favorite investments right now is Talon, um, which is a, you know, they built a spec data center. It's it, it, you know, they are in the process of trying to monetize that. That is uniquely well positioned to catch a deal with a hyperscaler because you can grow up to 950 megawatts of power on site, kind of under your control without needing to pass new transmission and distribution projects through a regulatory body that no one wants to pay for um, just to build the next, you know, uh, Microsoft data center. Um, and so I actually think power in general has a really nice long-term tailwind to it. And now you've got, uh, with talent, you, you get that backdrop, but now also you get this, this very large way to play and monetize, you know, axes, pickaxes and shovels to enable AI. And it's a, it, it's a transcendent opportunity relative to the current valuation. Interesting. So you just sort of mentioned a, a specific name, I guess, uh, you know, is there another, I mean, I guess maybe just building on that a little bit in terms of utilities, is that a sector more broadly, or do you think that's sort of a name specific valuation specific dynamic within that? I think that's, that's a name specific one because it's, it's a nexus of a, a bunch of different things. Um, I mean, look at the, I do think power in general is an appreciating asset. Uh, um, you can look at the con, you know, the constellation uh, stock chart or Vistra's stock chart. Um, this makes sense. Look at the forward power prices in ERCOT, which is the Texas market. They are way outside of norms. I mean, the, the peak load, I think, in 2022 of all time was 80 gigawatts in the summer of 2022. In 23, the peaks were up at like 85 gigawatts. That extra five gigawatts is a big, big number. Oh, and not everybody's driving EVs yet. Um, you know, people are still using gas to heat homes. We haven't gone to all electric heating and the amount of data centers that are continuing to be built are extreme. Read, you know, Dominion's regulatory filings in Northern Virginia. You know, they're talking about like a quadrupling of the data uh, of the power needs to run new data centers over the next handful of years. Where's all that going to come from? We're retiring and there's no new build dispatchable power um, in most of the country. And so the reliable dispatchable power is in a unique place. Renewables can keep the median prices low, but they're getting pushed and, and reduced to some degree now because of, you know, capital cost. And so I think that's a really interesting theme. Uh, and it's sort of that uh, kind of brings a number of different sort of things together, which makes it a very investable uh, opportunity. That's yeah, kind of interesting because, right, I mean, because of the power thematic was there with 
you know, the crypto space as well. And a lot of people sort of expressing concern around there, but that's seems like it would maybe be small potatoes relative to the potential demand of AI, just because everybody kind of wants in on the AI picture. Let's change gears a little bit, Andy. Yep. Creditor on creditor violence. They like to call it that. Uh, so I'll, 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 I, you know, w- w- we go to what they call it as opposed to what it might actually be. Um, sure. You guys are, you know, you're not one of the behemoths out there in credit. You're not, you know, like uh, uh, the, the GSOs of the world or the Angela Gordons of the world or, you know, or even the, the big asset managers uh, like the Black Rocks or PIMCOs. Um, when, how, how, how does that angle, when, when you have to address it, what's key for you in, in, in sort of navigating the creditor on creditor of violent waters? So it certainly comes up in our investment process. We need to be very thoughtful and mindful about the art of the possible. What do the contracts and bundles of rights allow for, you know, first principles level in the, in the credit docs and the instruments themselves. Second would be um, organizational groups and, and you know, cross holdings and things like that. We have been fortunate enough to sort of not be marred by any of the you know, the, you know, the so-called creditor on creditor violence and um, to date, knock on wood. Um, but I think, you know, we have our our fund has a lot of, you know, a deep experience, a lot of relationships. I mean, there's a number of things that are, are sort of, I think, afoot to try to minimize or reduce that, um, you know, the use of co-op agreements. Um, Early in my career, they were kind of a joke and, and no, they weren't used very often. And if they did, they had no real teeth. Um, that really changed. I actually think the the co-op agreement travel port at the end of 2020, uh, the second half of 2020, was kind of a threshold moment. And, and you've seen them in high profile things like Carvana and, and, and a handful of other smaller situations where they really have teeth. I mean, some of these co-op agreements can extend kind of indefinitely and they really, um, really limit the degrees of freedom for the other side. And so in certain instances, they can completely neuter um, at least the credit on credit violence amongst themselves. Um, you know, we try to join uh, groups and, uh, and, and make sure that we get engaged. If, it, if there's a situation that might have this come up, we try to get into, um, groups and things that are aligned with us early on to make sure that, you know, there's safety in numbers and that, you know, we're not going to be uh, in a position to be sort of disenfranchised. And I think ultimately if, you know, you have to be willing and able, unless, you know, you're like my previous shops where you can just buy enough to sort of dictate your, um, <laughs> dictate reality. Um, you have to be mindful of it. If we like a position but we think the risk is very high to be on the outside of a credit on credit sort of situation. Um, that's probably something we will pass on. And, and just, you know, we have no interest in, um, you know, fighting against the current on something just to sort of have a moral victory. So, um, you know, that's something that we would be reason enough for us to, to move along. There's plenty of opportunities out there. I'm curious because, you know, on, from my seat, you know, we, we tend to only hear about the situations that have these big fights. Um, 
you're you're looking at all these different investable ideas. You're looking through the docs of all these. Are there a lot of opportunities out there where people could do things and maybe cooler heads or more pragmatic heads say, hey, we're not going to get involved in that game and we're going to be a little bit more practical here and not end up paying, you know, a bunch of financial advisor fees and a bunch of lawyer fees for building this new construct up and then destroying it again? Or do you pretty much see every single one of these that it looks like it could happen? It's fake completely. It, it happens. I'm curious how you see it. No, I think it's, I think it's more the former. I think, unfortunately, most of the state of current documents allow for fairly reasonable potential for creditor on creditor violence, if you so call it that. Um, uh, I think it would be, there's a lot of flexibility when people talk about, you know, covenant light and things, I mean, kind of in touching on that is generally limited protections from these types of things. And so there's, a, and, and people use that term casually, that can mean different things to different people, but there's a lot of flexibility to do priming transactions, so-called unsub transactions, you know, in theory, the, the so-called CERTA situation where 51 prey on the 49 and, um, you know, talks about like lean stripping in certain instances and things. So there, there's a lot of, of different things that can happen. Um, I'd say, I'd say, you know, this is just a generic statement, but I think it's, it's pretty prevalent and, and potentially available in, in more cases than not for sure. Um, I think what happens is, uh, and maybe why you don't see it all the time, it sort of depends on ownership, um, the facts and circumstances, you know, who benefits and this gets into like our process thinking about like you know rational actors and, and who's incentivized and, and to do what um maturity dates and you know if you're a if you're a, a short dated bond that's going to mature in six months yeah you can strip away my non-sacred rights but if i'm going to mature in six months you know i probably have leverage on the company and you know i'm just using that as a, a, a stylized example but um it's certainly more available than is used, I think, for sure. Um, and it, the reason it's used less is cross holdings, positions, concentration, use of things like co-op agreements. Is sponsorship private versus public one of those uh, big determinants of whether they actually go down that path or not? I think so, yes. Um, sponsors, again, I'm generalizing, right. but sponsors will tend to be more aggressive and and leave no stone unturned than most public companies. But that right. is a generalization. For sure. So so maybe we kind of build on that dynamic and talk of like another flavor of the day and that being sort of private credit, a lot of which certainly out of the direct lending side of that business is into sponsor-led LBOs. So I guess, uh, you know, from where you sit, uh, you know, do you sort of have a view on the the phenomenon, on its persistence, and how it may or may not sort of impact uh, the opportunities set in your space? Do you see opportunities eventually coming from that universe? Uh, any views there? Well, let me start off. Uh, the rise in private credit over the last fifteen years has been nothing other than sort of stunning. I mean, it just has grown and grown and grown, kind of originally starting post financial crisis, and it just continues. Um, unabated. Um, some of it makes sense. I think the value proposition to private credit was pretty strong 
in sort of, you know, the late teens when, you know, you had like a Zerk policy and run of the mill syndicated high yield was yielding, you know, five, six, seven percent. And you could rationalize that picking up the illiquidity that you were getting in private credit to get to sort of double digit type returns was a fairly good value proposition. Um, I think it's unadulteratedly less attractive relative today. Um, when you think about, you know, how much both the risk-free and, and, and total yield available in the secondary market of credit, um, you know, being in the high single digits and double digits, and in many cases at a discount, um, and has liquidity, you know, certainly more liquidity than private credit, whereas the spreads and the aggregate returns in private credit have not moved up commensurately. You're getting a lot less for that illiquidity trade-off. And a lot of the private credit value proposition is really just sort of the non-mark-to-market nature of it and sort of pretending that it's a non-volatile thing, um, which it's it clearly is. Um, and, you know, so, I, you know, the relative value proposition, I think, in private credit is on the existing stock of assets is certainly worse relative to the secondary market and credit than it's been in a long time, in my opinion. Um, now, new you know, new deployment of capital, you, maybe you could argue is a little bit different. Um, as far as, you know, does it create opportunities, you know, it should. I don't. I think it really hasn't today. People have been talking about that for a long time. Um, I would say private credit really hasn't gone through a cycle yet. So I'd say how it resolves itself is untested, to, you know, largely. Um, and I've touched on this before. There are so in, in all markets, but you know, there are so many little tricks that people have come up with to defer and kick the can and not have a, a day of reckoning. Um, I mentioned, you know issuances of huge preferreds that are layering the sponsor equity, but is allowing in theory on paper ownership to continue. Um, for example, um, if rates stay at these levels and or higher, I think it could um, because you're going to have companies that are going to fail. And if we get a credit cycle, even more, you start to have default cycles. And I think that could create opportunities in like club deals where, you know, people need to have, you know, what if you, Phil and I are in a club deal and all three of us are lenders to the same company. Now it needs to be recapitalized. Do we all agree? Do we all want to put in new money or equity? Do we all have the ability to do so? You know, do we all think about it exactly the same way? I'm, I'm pretty sure you and if, Phil are going to, yes, you know, lay waste to me in that scenario, but, but we'll, we'll keep with the analogy. Wait, I'm just saying like in, in that situation, if we all agree, then yeah, this probably continues and we'll throw more money at it. We'll defer coupons, whatever, to kind of keep things kicking along. But if we have differences of opinion or if it gets into a bankruptcy um, and like, you know, Phil wants to sell or doesn't want to put in new capital, that could be very intriguing. And so, um, but that'll be like a strategic transaction. You can't just call up somebody and say, where are you on X, Y, Z? People will be like, huh? I, I have no idea what that is. Um, and so, you know, could, could this stuff be bundled in like NPL portfolios, possibly? Um, do they do one-offs? Possibly. But, you know, private credit, I would argue, 
really hasn't been tested and we'll have to see with if a proper credit cycle with how it's evolved to sort of see how things play out. I, I'm cautiously optimistic there could be opportunities, but you know, you're betting against a lot of uh, sophisticated kick the can. Yeah, and that's well, it's, of, it's, go ahead, Phil. Oh, it, it seems like one of the kick of the cans is that they keep drawing new capital. So helping their own deals yes. is probably the, the, the first a, a episode there. I think it's very clear that in a lot of the cohorts of the last three to f- I don't know, five years of LBOs, particularly in the middle market, and with a lot of this commercial real estate transactions, as I understand them, there's a whole lot of real, real embedded mark-to-market losses. I think that is unambiguous. The question is, they're in sort of a race. How long can we kick the can and pretend before we get the, the rally in rates and rates come back down to sort of help us out? If that happens, then maybe all will be okay and maybe it won't be such a big deal. But if rates stay high for longer and then you start having to have roll and debt service becomes un- unbearable and things, then you're going to have to have some sort of um, reckoning and washout. And uh, that's certainly the case in a lot of corporate sponsor deals in particular and, and, and real estate as we touched on before. And so um, that high for longer, if it persists against what the Fed forecast futures look like, um, it, it'll be a thing. Okay, we're, we're pushing on close to an hour, so I want to be sensitive to time, but I do still have a number of questions. So one of the things we're going to go to is, um, Andy, I saw something this year I didn't expect to see. It's kind of unusual. We have exit financing with a pick right off the bat. I'm like, bankruptcy yeah. is supposed to be... you get down to a debt level that's manageable and you don't have pick, um, you know, center world's the one that I'm thinking about, but I, you know, we saw Carvana where they took about half the interest there and they made it pickable. Yeah. Are, are we just creating like a problem that's not going to go away? I mean, cause it, here's the other thing is like one of the ways out of this macro situation we're in is inflation and that you inflate your way out of all this debt. And I, I know people don't like to hear it, but yeah. if, that, if, if that goes on, um, then, then maybe you can, but that, does, that, that's, that speaks to higher rates, that interest rates aren't gonna just drop all magically. Um, anyway, if you can just talk about maybe some of the new technologies that you're seeing, and you know, when it goes to private credit, can you also talk about that transparency problem that like, you know, when they go distressed, nobody knows these names. Um, you know, they haven't been broadly syndicated. And, you know, maybe uh, maybe if you can just touch on all of that. Sure. Um, I, I touched on it before with the, that so-called technology. Or not. I, I think it's it, it's. It speaks to what I was saying before is that all these markets have gotten very sophisticated in trying to kick the can. Um, it's almost as if everybody is looking around and sort of saying this impulse with higher rates is temporary. This is not going to persist. So if we can just kind of white knuckle it, figure out ways to sort of kick the can and not realize losses and maintain optionality, et cetera, et cetera, we'll do it. And I think that permeates all of these things. I think that's really the driving impulse behind all of it. Um, there will be a reckoning. If rates go higher, eventually that will that will be a reckoning. If rates don't completely collapse, then 
there will be a reckoning. It's just a matter of time, in my opinion. Um, Got it. It's, it, it, I don't, you know, I think I've touched on it. It's, it's just deferring and, and, and hoping, hoping that rates kind of resume sort of trend. Otherwise these cohorts are going to have problems and these deals will have problems at some point. Um, I'm sorry, what was the second question? Oh, it was, it, it, it was more along the lines of, um, with all these, the private credit oh, versus the, the broadly syndicated credit. loan market. It's when one's actively traded, there's people who are familiar with the names they are looking at it with these. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, because you're, you're the guy that they're expecting to maybe step in and buy their paper at, at, at a price. And you've never heard if, of the name. If, and when that happens, if, and when that happens in a credit cycle, it will be, the losses will be significant, I think, because you're going to talk about getting away from the, the illiquidity discount and the familiarity or lack thereof, I think will be, I didn't work in the distressed market in the eighties, but that's how it used to be described. It was not only by appointment, it was each trend, you know, complete, everything was completely opaque. Nobody had insight into things and things would trade at much, much larger discounts because of illiquidity and, and, and no transparency in the market. In a credit cycle, everybody gets really, really busy because every, there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of stuff starts to crack all at the same time. So if you have a middle market loan that a guy wants a bid on today, you know, you'll run a, you know, run a process, gets up to speed, and you'll probably get levels. But if and when we are actually being tested and it's a, a we're in a, in a credit cycle, a meaningful recession, et cetera, the distressed credit community is going to be inundated with opportunities. And it's a little bit like drinking from a fire hose and the ability for one little thing to break through and, and try to, you know, there's just going to be a larger discount than people expect when there's that much more supply. Maybe that's the simplest way to say it. And um, I would anticipate, um, you know, much larger losses if, you know, when you when they need the liquidity, uh, it'll be substantially more punitive. Right. Yeah. You have people flock to the bigger names um, the, and the ones that provide a bigger invert, uh, rate of return. And, and the biggest the biggest the biggest constraint in our right. business is time. It's resources. And so if I'm, you know, if, uh, you know, broker X, Y, Z calls up and is saying that, would you take a look at this? Well, like if I do and I spend time on it, I like it. Am I going to get it or is it going to trade away? Like. Like I need to know that I'm going to get a chance at this. Otherwise, do I really want to spend the time? And, and that, I think, is as much as anything, uh, sort of like the lemons problem that sort of metastasizes itself into makes so much sense. OK, now I'm going to go to the next topic. And this is one I'm really I really want to hear. And I, I gave you a heads up. I'd be asking it. Uh, what is the Andy Taylor favorite idea? What, what, what makes your eyes get big when when you see it? And, uh, you know, just what are some of the hallmarks of that investment? And I may, this may be a little bit different in different dimensions than some people yeah. generally talk about it, but, um, I like an improving backdrop or, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be immediate. I'm not talking about quarter to quarter, but I'm talking about like, is this a rising tide sort of situation? Sort of like I mentioned with talent power assets are going to be appreciating assets going forward. You know, is there a, is there a secular tailwind that is going to continue to support stuff? Maybe you don't get the timing right, but like exactly, but is it just generally a backward tailwind to those 
that industry, that thing. Um, I love to have structural asymmetry in in a in a vacuum. You know, I you know, option like payout or a you know, some sort of uh, others, or or even you can sometimes create that in like a curve trade, for instance, where you know you have a couple of points at risk in a in a curve steepener, for instance, the front end can rally as in a bullish situation, but give a very defined risk in the in the other scenario. I mean, there's lots of, and that's just one example, but like structural asymmetry is great if you can get it. Option like payouts, um, obviously, you know, a probabilistic skew, you know, are the Good things more likely to happen than not. If you can overlay all of these layers, it makes it even better. Um, I also like lots of ways to win. Uh, you know, one thing that we used to, um, I, I guess, throughout my career, we, you know, at Harpoint, it's just, is there only one path to investment success in this complex or event driven situation? Or are there multiple ways to win? Are there multiple independent value creators that are not correlated? Um, and I guess scalability. I mean, that's the other thing is sometimes you think about like, you may be style points in a small trade, but like, can you actually put some real money to work? Can it be impactful for your portfolio um, and the amount of time that you spend on it? So to me, it's that it's, it's having all of those layers would be sort of the ideal investment. I, I don't know if you can talk about it, but it seems like Twitter w m might fit into that mold, you know, maybe at a high level. Yeah, I mean, Twitter, we we saw what happened. There was a large discount and in, in, uh, breakdown in, in market prices when people were concerned once he started challenging the deal and saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, so we we obviously reviewed all of the, the documents. We hired expert chancery court counsel to advise and to supplement our own intuition. Um, we went to really theoretical boundary conditions because as the richest man in the world like what could he do even if there is a ruling and a judgment could he just go to another country collectability how could like how can you enforce necessarily to make sure that even if he loses you know this is a that you're actually going to be able to get what you get and we became very very comfortable with the weakness in the arguments that he had made and how sound and well protected um the seller, you know, the company side of the contract and the arrangement were. Um, and so then we just risked, we, we went through and then looked at, you know, that's the left side of my proverbial balance sheet. And then on the right side, we evaluated all of the different ways to express this opinion. Um, and we looked at uh, the converts, the straight bonds with change control, the converts had a make hole. We looked at options, we looked at stock, um, and we did a number of different trades at different times. So like we did calendar spreads you know, selling upside calls to buy longer dated calls because that deferred our price when we knew resolution wasn't going to take occur until after the first expiry. So it deferred our cost of uh, exposure. Uh, we wound up at different times, uh, you know, we owned the converts and at different times owned some of the straight bonds. We were just constantly re-ranking and force ranking, which is the best up down, which is the, the most attractive uh, asymmetry um, as we kind of, you know, added and, and built our position. And so I, you know, I get kind of touches on our you know, like playbook. Like we, we don't, we had, we can express things different ways. We're, um, fluid in that uh, way. That, that, that's, that's perfect. Cause it, you know, w what becomes clear is that for you, it has to check a lot of boxes and it, you know, it, you're going to be careful about making sure each of those boxes has sort of a, a broad kind of possibility of getting there. 
Um, so I think, um, I think we're going to wind this down. Um, I don't think I need to ask you about your investment North star. Cause I think we just heard it. Um, that was one of the questions that I had. Um, um, but you know, go ahead. I would just say, I would I'd just answer that one. I'd say, you know, for anybody who fancies himself, just be an original thinker. You know, when I look at my, you know, some of the guys I think are on Mount Rushmore, Sam Zell, uh, Sam Zell, Stanley Druckenmiller, um, you know, Warren Buffett, um, Charlie, you know, think about Munger or um, Peter Lynch. They're all very different styles. But one thing that comes through is they're all original thinkers. They're, they do their own analysis. They have their own point of view. They have their own work. And I think every great investor, regardless of dis discipline, is that. Um, you know, just understanding what everybody else is doing is, um, is certainly not sufficient to be a really great investor. And so that's to me that the type of attribute I always really value and look for, it's like my highest compliment. Are you a, a an original thinker? And, and how about best lesson ever learned in the marketplace? I think I obviously don't believe in completely efficient marketplaces. Um, otherwise it wouldn't do what we do, but. Maybe it's my roots at University of Chicago. Maybe it's just experience. I do think it is a reasonable starting hypothesis to assume things are efficient uh, and, and then try to figure out reasons why it may not be. Um, there's a lot of smart people out there. There's a lot of money chasing ideas and, and really, really focus on what's not discounted, what's not known. Try to peek around that proverbial corner. I think that's really the, and that touches on my original thinker. That, like, if you're not doing that, then you really should question, you know, what's your, you know, what's your edge? What, what's your difference? Have you figured opinion? out the market capitalization in NVIDIA yet then in that regard? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I have not uh, tried. I've not even attempted to, um, to observe that problem. That's just, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of off the game board for professional investing for us. And so, no, not even, haven't well, even spent Andy, thank you very much. Noel, did you have any uh, follow-ups? No, please. No, I, I was going to say like, what's your best Phil Brendel story? But, uh, you know, we can <laughs> save that for, for another time. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I have probably at least, uh, Check to see what you know. We could share That's publicly. Right, yeah, anyway. no, we, this is a PG show. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, anyway, just teasing, obviously. But um, but no, I, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, having me on. Thank you so it. much. Thanks, everybody. Welcome back, listeners. And so now we start the part of the program where we, Nagisa and Phil mostly, <laughs> like to start digging into the particulars here and. And really a pretty high profile slate of conversations to have with you all this month. So let's go ahead and dive in. And Nagisa, I guess maybe the the issue of the hour or something that's, uh, I don't know if it caught anybody by surprise, but certainly pretty interesting. Supreme Court getting involved uh, in Purdue. What, what are we looking for here? What do we make of this? Sure. Thanks, Noel. So on December 4th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Purdue Pharma's. This was the six, over the $6 billion settlement with the Sacklers. Uh, at its core, this is a question uh, centered on Section 1123B6 of the Bankruptcy Code, more specifically um, whether the code permits non-consensual third-party releases. 
So in other words, whether a Chapter 11 plan can include uh, a creditor's non-consensual releases against non-debtor third parties. Uh, so as you said, this has been referred to perhaps justifiably as maybe the most important bankruptcy case uh, to make its way to the Supreme Court in the past decades. Uh, so uh, at its core, it's dealing with the ability of a bankruptcy court to allow this non-consensual third-party releases. And at its core, it has the potential of affecting bankruptcy settlements, maybe particularly mass tort uh, settlements in the, in the mass tort space. So to just a little bit of brief history, Judge Drain in New York Bankruptcy Court famously approved a plan that incorporated non-consensual releases of opioid claims against the Sacklers in exchange for a $4.5 billion contribution. Uh, this was a few years ago. So by the time the case made its way to the Second Circuit, it was rejected by the district court. Um, the settlement went, amount went up to $6 billion where it is now. The Second Circuit reversed the district court and reinstated the settlement and as a result, uh, confirmation of the plan. So now where we are at the Supreme Court, we have a fully consensual plan. Um, what actually took up a substantial portion of their argument is the fact that uh, 97 of those voting to accept the plan um, actually voted to accept the plan. So with 3% only voting against it. Um, and maybe there's a brief explanation needed here. <clears throat> there's a concern maybe by some justices about uh, what uh, they call invisible creditors. I think mistakenly they're referred to as invisible debtors, but uh, we're talking about 97% of those voting for the plans and not necessarily 97% of all creditors, right? So uh, the settlement where it is now is being challenged by the U.S. trustee. The U.S. trustee is the government watchdog of the bankruptcy process. Um, and it's always obviously hard to predict how court rules. I think, uh, I think I'd start by saying that uh, here it may be harder to predict uh, that those that follow the case maybe had initially expected. Uh, there's a circuit split when it comes to non-debtor releases. And given who the Sacklers are, the procedural history of the case, how the settlement went up by over a billion dollars as the case was getting appealed, the silence of the bankruptcy code on the topic of non-consensual releases, I think it's fair to say that there maybe there was an expectation that the Supreme Court had been a lot clearer in this question, maybe perhaps, and a lot perhaps harsher on the on Purdue and the settlement. And for sure, I mean, certain justices were. I'd say uh, Justice Jackson, Barrett, and Gorsuch appeared very critical of Purdue's position. But I think um, what was surprising was an overall focus on practical implications of undoing the settlement. Um, there was a reluctance by some justices on the question of standing, that here we have an objection by um, a governmental body, uh, this objection being raised primarily by the U.S. trustee, uh, who has no economic stake on this issue. And if this deal comes undone, there's an argument, certainly an argument that was put forward by the creditors committee, that creditors may get nothing. Um, and even if that's an, not a realistic possibility, there appeared to be quite a bit of discomfort on the part of some justices uh, that 
question about questioning sort of this judgment of creditors and replacing that that uh, negotiated and agreed to this settlement and replacing the judgment of creditors with that of the U.S. trustee. Uh, we saw that point of view perhaps most clearly by just from Justice Kagan in certain lines of the questioning. Um, and the, this question of can the U.S. trustee come here and blow up this deal, even if single creditor opposes it, kind of just ran through the questioning. Um, that role of the U.S. trustee, I'd say, was probably also questioned by Justice Thomas and Kavanaugh as well, but I think we saw it more clearly in Justice Kagan's line of questioning. Uh, generally speaking, when it comes to what the code says, uh, one of the main questions that uh, came up throughout their argument was the meaning of the word appropriate. The, the code provision that I mentioned at the beginning, this 1123B6, uh, is ultimately a catch-all provision. It's very short. It says that the plan shall include any other appropriate provision that's not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of this title. So there was obviously a lot of wrestling with questions of what's an appropriate provision, what's not inconsistent, uh, does or should the bankruptcy code have the ability to decide what's appropriate um, that was accompanied by citations of sort of the court's general reluctance with this idea of hiding elephants in households. We heard that a lot. The reminders of the major question doctrine. So the, that doctrine that illustrates, again, the court's reluctance of reading a statute to give agencies broad authority on major questions. That basically leads to an understanding that it should be Congress to make a decision on such important important topics like non-consensual releases and not not bankruptcy judges. Uh, surpri surprisingly, just when this, I would say there was very limited time was spent on cons on constitutional issues. Yes, there were some questions on whether uh, there are due process issues with having these non-consensual releases approved through a plan. But I'd say those questions were limited compared to the rest. Uh, I, I mean, where we stand, uh, it will be a few months, obviously, until we have a decision. I think ultimately uh, Purdue and the Sacklers may still lose here. Uh, if they do, it's probably it may not be a nine to zero decision. Um, and again, sort of listening to the oral argument, one wonders sort of how significant questions about whether this was a good or bad deal for creditors. Maybe there was a lot of questions along those lines. So that that's kind of, that's right. Yeah, so I, I guess maybe before moving on, I guess one question I would have there is in terms of, I want to pull on the string a little bit where you mentioned early on in terms of potential implications for bankruptcy, more broadly speaking. Do you think that sort of enters the the consideration process here as the, as the court sort of deliberates and works through this? So a few answers to that. So uh, there, there, some of that was brought up during the questionings, particular with respect to uh, J and J uh, and and uh, the Texas Two Step, which are topics we've talked about extensively here. How that may affect it. Um, uh, I think there were questions as to whether uh, settlements have ever been reached in the absence of non-consensual third-party releases. PG&E was brought up as an example, but again, parties and the courts and the justice actually distinguished between what we have here, uh, an insolvent debtor versus in PG&E's case, which was a solvent debtor, so in many ways easier to come up with a settlement there. So that concern is there, I think, as is always the case. 
the court will try to the extent is possible to uh, whatever decision it comes it, it it makes to to make it as narrow as it possibly can so as to not have a broad reach but the the risk is there obviously interesting so well i i think i think for speak for both uh, Phil and myself that section 1123b6 is definitely our favorite section <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> but, but maybe let's move on here and, and talk to another name that sort of sort of you know drew a lot of uh, attention over the years uh, and is sort of in the phase of I guess winding its way through now, and that's WeWork. So so I, I'll start with that. Um, so WeWork filed for bankruptcy in early November. Uh, it had it, it had a clear sort of negotiated comprehensive restructuring with SoftBank and other major stakeholders to cut about uh, $3 billion in funded debt. But uh, it was clear that a lot hinges, continues to hinge on its ability to pair its lease portfolio and cut costs. So um, I want to sort of explain a little bit where the, what the Chapter 11 does for WeWork. It certainly does give the company the tools to reduce this red, this rent burden, but a lot hinges on landlords' ability to negotiate here. Uh, as we all know, many leases were entered in a much stronger real estate market. Uh, lots of them have become unsustainable, and generally speaking, a debtor can reject burdensome contracts in bankruptcy. That rejection, the that rejection will be treated as a breach, uh, and then uh, what would happen? Just simply speaking, we work with surrender those premises to landlords. Uh, on the landlord side, what we have is uh, upon rejection, a landlord would be entitled to an unsecured claim that's capped to the greater of a year's rent, or in the case of long-term leases, fifty uh, percent that's not to exceed three years uh, of the lease's remaining terms. Uh, there's a difference here with post-petition rent, which is typically treated as a priority administrative claim that requires full payment. Um, the, so again, important to know, pretty basic, but the bankruptcy code does allow lease rejection assumption. Uh, it, it doesn't allow, obviously, the debtor to propose its own negotiated lease. The hope here is that this mere threat of rejection by WeWork may prompt concessions from landlords. I think that was a big focus of WeWork's first day hearing in uh, early November, where it uh, basically told landlords that timing is key here and um, even said that those who negotiate first may actually gain an advantage in bankruptcy. Um it did so by sort of drawing attention to concessions that SoftBank had made, other funded debt creditors had made, and kind of called for similar compromise. Um, on the part of landlords, the automatic stay obviously comes into play here. It prohibits them from terminating leases, obviously. It prohibits them from refusing to perform obligations. Uh, but they're also permitted from uh, making sort of collection attempts for past rent and or taking eviction actions. Um, there's some timing issues here. We work just kind of looking forward. They might they must make a decision within 120 days after the bankruptcy filing. That brings them to March 5th. They can extend that by another 90 days. 
which brings them to early June. So uh, once the decisions are made, I think we can expect the court to rely on WeWork's business judgment. This are this typically low bar for uh, a court to approve uh, debtors' rejection decisions. So uh, I think that once those decisions are made, they're probably... Um, it's just they, the court would have second guess them, but we're still pretty early in in, in that stage. Yeah, this strikes me as one where they're going to want to move uh, reasonably quickly, just given what's going on in the marketplace there. But uh, maybe shifting gears, and and, uh, and that's the the appropriate uh, idiom, I guess. Maybe uh, as we move into Yellow Corp, uh, you know, and I know this is one you both have interest in, and obviously, uh, you know, they're in the news. Uh, recently, as uh, you know, XPO is is in the market with a, a debt deal to acquire some of the assets there. But I guess uh, sort of what's the latest in sort of that bankruptcy case? And I know Phil, you're involved here too, so let's uh, let's bring you in after Nagisa. Sure. So that's the recent news on that was, as you mentioned, the auction results uh, that resulted at one point nine billion dollars for the sale of just about uh, 75% of the real estate properties. So 25% remain to be sold. Um, it That $1.9 billion topped uh, Estes' previous one, a little over $1.5 billion stocking horse bid for the real property that had initially actually supplanted Old Dominion's $1.5 billion offer for, I think, all of the properties. So um, it's the overall great result for Yellow. Uh, what it does probably also, it, it does on the other side cut off sort of hopes and attempts to avoid liquidation, which had been in the news for a while now in the past few weeks. Um, as you mentioned, XPO was a purchaser. I believe their purchase price was at $870 million. Estes and Saya followed. Um it the auction. It was clear the auction was producing positive results. It started November twenty eighth. It was supposed to end by December first. I think it continued through the beginning of December, and the and the wins was announced. the The, the results were announced December fourth. Um, just the only thing I'd add with this is that sort of you go back to the beginning of the case, and a lot seemed to have gone right here. Um, what prolonged this sale and marketing process was the new dip that they entered with Citadel and MFN that allowed a 180-day sale process, which was double the 90-day that the uh, Apollo dip had initially proposed, So, uh, which also was a lot more expensive. So that extension ultimately did do what it, what it promised to do, which is lead to uh, just higher sale proceeds. Um, so, I mean, it's, there's still a lot of questions as to what it means. There's a lot of questions as to how that remaining 25% will be sold. The company hasn't posted a schedule for, for those sales. So there's a question as to what, how that will translate in dollars. But for now, just positive results, it seems. Yeah, no, uh, it, this, this case has been incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, it, it, and, and just to point out some of the odd things here is one, this company is clearly worth more dead than alive. Um, you know, the $1.9 billion from the real property and then, you know, anywhere between half a billion to a billion for the, the rolling stock, uh, potentially. My um, wife might say that about me, by the way, but we'll, we'll keep that between us. 
Yeah, we, we believe he's same. Hopefully, they, our wives continue to like us. Um, but to, to to move on, the the other aspect here is there's a massive government element and there's a massive union element. And you know, just to put this in perspective, even with this these great results from the auction, um, it, and you know, on the balance sheet there wasn't more than I, I think one and a half billion dollars of obligations and debts. But what has always been out there is the obligation to the underfunded pension, which is central states. And in the footnotes, this is, you know, heads up, uh, analysts, read your footnotes. They always pointed out in the 10K that this was potentially a $6 billion obligation. Well, guess what? Central states filed and they said it was a $4.8 billion uh, claim. And that's 13% of a theoretical unfunded vested benefit. And I say theoretical because this brings us back to the government angle. Um, in 2023, uh, central states received a $36 billion check from the U.S. government under the American Rescue Act. Um, and what that did was took their underfunded pension from 14% funded to about 98.5% funded. So <laughs> that's, yeah, it, I wish someone did that with my pension. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it's what this does is it, this, that's why I say it's a theoretical unfunded vested benefit because uh, the PBGC and ERISA law, they, they contemplated that all of a sudden this would let you know, people who had the worst um, pension funding uh, benefit from it, the companies that they, you know, because they're only they're only paying the un, you know, their pro rata share of whatever the unfunded uh, number is. And so, what what they specifically said was, this thirty six billion will be phased in over a long period of time. And since this happened in the first year, and it's phasing in over, I think it's ten years. Um, they're not really seeing much of that credit. Um, but nevertheless, you have shareholders here, and I still expect that this might be a hotly debated item in the bankruptcy court because the shareholders might claim, hey, w this is a fiction. Uh, the unfunded vested benefit here is is not $36 billion as they might claim in their claim, in, in central states' claim on the on on yellow, um, it's significantly less. And if they can reduce that $4.8 billion claim, either via settlement or via litigation, um, you know, then maybe they're talking some of those proceeds from the asset sales that Nagisa was talking about might fall to shareholders. At least that's the argument. I think it's a extreme long shot because yellow, um, you know, it's all about Arisa law and how it's it's interpreted, and I'd be surprised if they can change that. But it's an argument. Uh, so anyway, that's that's what I found fascinating, and I also found, um, you know, there was a big reorganization effort. I wouldn't call it a reorganization effort. I call it a res resurrection effort because this company's been closed for six months, but the Teamsters were uh, lending their support to a potential bid by uh, a Jack Cooper's uh, CEO um, that would try and bring this company back alive. And 
I think, look, the, I think the government in not rolling their uh, debt to to a company that is just starting from scratch at this point now, and also central states made the right decision in just saying, we'll take what we can get now because it is a much different bet to make a bet on a company that's actually operating during a bankruptcy to one that is at this point dead. And I think that that was the safer decision for all the all the stakeholders there. Yeah, I would suspect that central states could maybe just uh, adjust its discount rate and sort of show itself to be less funded than it is to say that it needs uh, whatever the whole of that claim is. But maybe sticking with you, Phil, here and moving on to uh, another one of your favorites, and that being Odyssey. What's what's going on there? So I'll just mention this with Odyssey. We keep thinking that it's going to file a, a pre-pack or a, a pre-arranged plan of reorganization uh, because they've got three or four different sets of creditors. Uh, no, they have two sets of notes and one credit facility and one a- accounts receivable facility, all extending um, uh, forbearance and on $50 million of interest. Um, and at some point, we're probably going to see this plan. Um, I doubt it's going to be out of court, but you you never know. The, the The debt here has been trading at extremely low levels, so I, I wouldn't rule anything out. Um, but I, I I think at some point we'll probably see uh, it file. And I would expect, I would hope that given the delays here, that the uh, that the creditors actually have you know are have achieved a. Uh, a quick bankruptcy. So I, I imagine they might tee it up for a quick in and out. Um, and uh, it would be an equitization. Largely, most of the equity would probably go to the, the first lien uh, term loan. Um, yeah, that's but, a surprising one that sort of kind of lingers outside of the courts. So I, I guess we'll kind of keep our eyes peeled. But staying mindful of time, Nagisa, maybe we go to you to wrap up. And, and one that's maybe not quite gone to plan, our friends over at Rite Aid, what's the latest for them? Yeah, and, and this is all about time. So uh, I think it's fair to start with the premise that a lot here, again, hinges on how much time Rite Aid will spend in bankruptcy. Uh, a lot is not going, I guess, right for, for now. It started with the formation of two committees. We have an unsecured creditors committee as well as a tort claimants panel. Um, what does it do? Is it really a big of a deal? Well, it may make consensus more difficult by uh, highlighting sort of potentially divergent views and interests. Um, that's maybe what we do know for sure is that the committees are putting uh, forward a strong opposition uh, first uh, to the dip with a hearing that's scheduled mid-December. Um, the disputes over this uh, $3.25 billion dip uh, aren't surprising in many ways. Uh, we There's only a $200 million uh, new money component. The rest uh, is made up of a, of a creeping roll-up. So the main concern uh, on the part of creditors is that Oh, unsecured creditors, unsecured committees, that it's structured to prohibit any rec- recovery to unsecureds and in favor of secured lenders. Uh, that's not all, though. The Rite Aid filed with a proposed stocking horse bid by Med Impact for the Elixir 
sale, which is the pharmacy benefits manager, uh, benefits manager business segment. Uh, since then, uh, we've heard that there are financing issues with the offer that has led to Rite Aid perhaps being on the path to propose a way to finance the sale itself, though that's not clear for now. What the company has done and did in November is combine the two sale process for the Elixir and the rest of the retail operations, signaling um, a an effort to sell the company as a whole. Um, though the, there was some implication there may have been an there may be an interest in it, but we don't really know much about that potential sort of path. Um, again, timings of of essence here. I think uh, the court has put the January hearing for the sale. So there's limited time for that overall. I think what plays a role into all of this is McKesson's claim. They have a settlement with McKesson's uh, that adjusted the amounts due to McKesson. McKesson now is getting a super priority administrative claim uh, in the bankruptcy for the ongoing payment. And there's valid concern, even in part of the court, that those payments could in fact risk administrative insolvency down the road. And that's sort of the big concern hanging over the case for now. Interesting as ever. So I guess that probably brings us to time. So with that, once again, we'd like to thank uh, uh, our guest, Andy Taylor, for joining us this month. And of course, uh, thank you, our listeners, once again, for dialing in. Until next time, this has been State of Distressed Debt.